overcoming saber-toothed tigers and woolly mammoths, we must now face a new enemy, ourselves. With the rates of diseases such as heart disease, stroke, diabetes, depression, and many others ballooning, we must find a better solution to these modern epidemics. Preventive Medicine Podcast. We believe in building a foundation of health by means of prevention so that you can build the life you want and find fulfillment with no barriers. Hear from experts around the country on how to take your health into your hands. Take control and build a foundation of health for the life that you want to live. And now here's your hosts, Jason Garrett and Raghav Sharma. Hello, everyone. Welcome to a brand new episode of the Preventive Medicine Podcast. Today, we have our first repeat guest on the show, which we're incredibly excited about. But first, I want to talk to you all about our mailing list. Those of you that were on our mailing list prior to this episode already got notified when it went up immediately, and we're trying to continue building that list as a more direct way of communicating with you all. Given that Instagram and Facebook will only show you things based on what they think you want to see, in other words, the algorithm, um, we want to make sure that you guys are notified and we have a direct line of access. So if you aren't already, head on over to our website or click the first link in the show notes or on our Instagram bio to sign up for our mailing list and stay in touch with us. And now on to the episode. Hey guys, welcome back to the Preventive Medicine Podcast. Today we have with us our first repeat guest on the Prevent Pod, and that is Dr. Sam Spinelli, who is a doctor of physical therapy uh, based in Canada, who also uh, is uh, on Instagram running multiple rehab and uh, sports performance pages. So welcome back, Dr. Spinelli. Thanks for having me back, guys. This is fantastic. Yeah, absolutely. We had a great conversation in our first episode. So if you guys at home haven't listened to that one yet, that's a great episode. We talked about kind of all things, uh, injuries, back pain, all kinds of stuff. So it's a great episode. So if you haven't listened to that one, go check it out. Um, but you know, first things first, you know, kind of repeating the same question, seeing if maybe anything has changed for you. Uh, what does preventive medicine mean to you? Has it changed at all in the past year since we've talked? I'd say it hasn't changed. For me, I still think that preventive medicine at the heart is creating as much meaningful change before things start to creep up. So, you know, uh, encouraging the best active, healthy lifestyle that you can, trying to be accountable to yourself for doing the small little things like getting sufficient amount of sleep, sufficient quality of sleep, um, a decent amount of walking each day, all that kind of stuff. And just taking initiative in your own health to do the, the stuff that might be monotonous and not as much fun, but provides a lot of long-term benefit and doing so consistently for a long duration of time. I think that's generally what we can classify as preventative medicine. Um, it's a little bit hard. Uh, obviously, you guys are coming from a different perspective than I have on this. Like, I'm not prescribing medication. I'm not doing anything from that standpoint. So for me, like, there, there's definitely uh, merit on that side of, the, of it as well, but I don't, I don't play in that game, so I can't really classify that for me. Yeah. And then last time we were on the podcast, we talked a lot about the uh, larger types injuries. Like I think we focused a lot more on back pain, which is a significant burden on the global population in general. Today, we're going to change that just a little bit. Instead of focusing on those large things like the back pain, we're going to focus on those little nagging injuries, such as things like tendonitis, strains, sprains, the daily things that people might experience. Let's say they're playing tennis. And then after like two weeks, they suddenly get some sort of ache in their elbow. So is there any way to prevent some of those like smaller type injuries or quote unquote injuries that those might be? 
Yeah, definitely. So the first thing is that whenever we're looking at any of these sort of smaller injuries or even the degree, the bigger ones, we're often looking at some sort of um, challenging task that the person is not prepared for. You know, you give the example of tennis elbow, essentially, and tennis elbow is a, a prime one there where we often see that there's some sort of spike in challenge and the person then is unprepared for the demands of the task. And that's when they usually will have some sort of uh, issue creep up. So generally trying to be as prepared as you can to the best of your abilities, which is tricky because you never know what's going to come in life, but you can sort of use what we discussed previously in regards to preventative medicine as developing a general capacity to be in a better place. You know, if you are going to go and play tennis and you've never done so, well, you might be better off starting off and building your way up. But in the same stance, if you regularly sleep well, if you are generally physically active, if you also lift weights, you're going to be in a better state to go and do that task versus if you hadn't been doing any of those things previously. So that's going to be one of the best things that you can do as an all around. We see that for the vast majority of people anyways, resistance training on a regular basis helps to increase your general capacity and reduces your likelihood of a lot of these small little aches and pains. So, you know, if you don't already lift weights um, or at least do some sort of challenging physical activity, doing so is going to put you in a way better place. I'm very biased from the standpoint that I love lifting weights, but we do see consistently for almost everything that just increases your ability to tolerate load, tolerate stress, and just do things better. So it's a fantastic option. Um, Otherwise, you know, again, like ramping up your activity gradually over time is going to be one of the best things. Um, Not doing things super intense and super frequently. If you want to play tennis and you want to do so once or twice a week and you want to push it, you're probably going to be fine. If you want to go intense five or six days a week and you're not used to ramping that up over time, you're going to experience a lot of challenge with that most likely. So generally we see that those are more often than not the best things that we can do for it. So it seems like it, basically load management, I guess, in simple simple terms, is kind of that idea of you know making sure you're not you know you're not going into an activity too quickly or doing too much of an activity too quickly or too intensely too quickly um, to give kind of our our tissue structures time to adapt and even our brain time to adapt to that sort of a stimulus uh, repetitively. I was going to throw a little caveat onto that. You talked a lot about resistance training there and like strength training to get through these things. What if you'd get something like a strainer sprain from strength training? Like as a personal example, when I get, I'm competing for that powerlifting meet in March. And when I get deep enough into prepped, I always tend to get tendonitis, likely from just like the elbow position while I'm squatting, right? Cause it's severely loaded there. So what do you do in that kind of scenario? So, uh, similar to Jason's point, I started to like, uh, shy a little bit away from the term load management, even though I love the general, uh, principle of what it means just because right now there's a little bit of heated debate in the, uh, current research world on it. So, um, now the, the principle that Jason mentioned of, you know, doing too much at a, ter- at a current time is essentially, you know, the situation for you. And it's where, yeah, like if you're going to be ramping up your intensity as you get closer to a meet. We do see that for most people with any sort of um, ache or pain, particularly more of like a tendonitis type issue, uh, and I'd I'd go more towards the term tendinopathy, but regardless for the listeners, you know, tendonitis, and um, we do see that people will typically have more of an issue towards higher intensities with that. So if you are doing, you know, more intense back squatting along with more intense bench pressing, it is common to see that uh, pop up. 
you're definitely hopefully going to be able to mitigate that by having better prep going into the, uh, the intensity phase, a challenge that comes with it is going to be, you know, there's going to be certain things that we do put our body into from a positional standpoint and from a stress standpoint, from a kinetics, uh, perspective that we just to a degree can't prepare for. Like if you're talking about a low bar squat position and uh, a challenge on the medial stress on the elbow from just the amount of valgus pressure that's going to be placed on it in that low bar position, like you, you can ramp up gradually over time, but when you're carrying a ton of weight, like, I don't know what you squat exactly, but I'm going to guess it's not like, (laughs) exactly. So, you know, it's, it's not something you can try to replicate with some sort of like little external rotation drill laying on the ground. And I'm going to load that, that sucker up and try to build a capacity in my medial elbow structure. Like it's not going to work that way very well. And to a degree, you can definitely try to do that with a lot of stuff. And you can also do some additional drills on, you know, strengthening the medial elbow um, structure. So doing some gripping work, do some rotational work, et cetera. But it's, it's only going to have so much of an effect. And at best in someone's situation like that, where you have a destined competition, a destined event where you're going to then cease the challenging activity and then come back down and recover. Sometimes you're at best going to be looking to just mitigate the amount of challenge and stress that the person's experiencing. And then knowing that it's going to come off and then they can recover. That's often something that I'm doing with a lot. Right now I work with a lot of endurance athletes, swimmers and runners. And, um, for uh, oftentimes they have like a specific event that they're training for right now. I work with uh, a few swimmers that are trying to, uh, work towards if the Olympics ever happens and they have these different swim meets that they train up to. And in preparation for it, it's very common that they'll have some sort of issue, either shoulder or back pop up just around like three to four weeks out. And we try to navigate to the best degree that we can, but it's extremely consistent for both of these swimmers that when they're right around four weeks out, it pops up and we know that it's going to come. And they've also experienced it every time that the meet's over, they basically have it go away within the first two weeks. And so they've become comfortable with understanding that number one, it's not something scary. It's not damaging them. They're going to be fine with it. And so we figure out ways that we can navigate managing their load to the best degree that we can. And, uh, trying to experiment in their preseason leading up to that, to be more prepared for what's going to come. But as long as you also understand and are comfortable that pain isn't necessarily something to be concerned about in all situations, that it is just maybe telling you that something is getting loaded to a high degree more than it likes, but it's going to be for a temporary period of time. You can chug along through, you know, like that's what I would probably say in your case. Um, it's pretty, it, it's possible that you're going to, you know, maybe have a long-term issue from it, but it's extremely unlikely. Mm. One of the yeah. things that you mentioned in there also that kind of annoys me is the, the notion of people laying on the ground doing those external rotation, like, and you see them like warming up for like 30 minutes doing these random exercises. You're like, what are you preparing for? Like now, yeah. um, like you're, you're not going to be back squatting like 600, 700 pounds. Likely you're probably just like a novice lifter, but they're still warming up for 30 to 40 minutes, extending their gym sessions up to two hours just because of they're doing all this kind of thing. Yeah. So, um, it's good to know kind of that you're mentioning that you don't necessarily need to do it. You can do it if it's going to try to help, but not necessarily the biggest bang for your buck. And so Dr. Spinelli, when you're for an athlete, right? Like you get to that point in training, whether, whether it's a known thing that happens or, or a new thing, you know, you get to a certain point, you develop, you know, uh, some knee pain, some elbow pain, shoulder pain, back pain, whatever. What steps would you advise people take in terms of, you know, when do you stop activity? When do you try to push through and when do you need to stop that? Take a step back and kind of, reevaluate how you're loading and that sort of thing. 
Yeah, those are, those are very good questions, Jason. Thank you. And good points earlier. We have, um, like basically for me, in most cases, we're going to be looking at number one is the person, um, tolerating the amount of discomfort that they have, or is it exceeding what they're comfortable with at the end of the day to decide, do we need to change the actual activity itself? Uh, I'm okay. If someone has pain while they're doing different activities, you know, if you're a runner and you got knee pain while you're running, if you're a power lifter and you have elbow pain while you're doing low bar squat, that doesn't inherently indicate to me that you need to stop doing the activity. However, if you do say that when I run, my knee pain is so bad that I need to stop running. Or if you say, I can't low bar squat because my elbow hurts so badly, that would be an indicator that we probably need to um, stop doing the direct activity and probably find a solution to doing that activity uh, as similarly as we can for the meantime. So in the case of runner, you know, right now I'll have people that if they do, for whatever reason, experience a lot of knee pain with it, maybe we're going to try cycling, maybe we're going to try speed walking, one of those options. While also, you know, navigating, can we find a solution to your actual running? Like maybe we need to change your cadence, maybe we need to change one of these things. And then same thing for the powerlifter. It might be a change to high bar squatting. It might be a change to safety bar squatting. It might be changed to some sort of different type of squat while training that pattern to the best degree that we can. And then figuring out, okay, well, why does your elbow hurt to such a degree during the low bar squat? Do you have an insufficient amount of external rotation at your shoulder? And that is why you're having such a huge amount of stress placed on it. Because if you do have very limited external rotation, and you're trying to force yourself into that position because you do have 600 pounds on there and you're cranking your shoulder back. Okay. Well, that would make sense. You know, like if we will look at a baseball pitcher and when they go into that, uh, layback position, we know that that person is putting a huge amount of stress on it. And we do consistently have a lot of research indicating higher, um, vo higher velocity pitching is associated with more medial elbow stress and more likely of rupturing it. And so then we can, to a degree, transfer that information over and tell us that if you're limited external rotation and cranking that sucker back, well, you're obviously going to be loading it to a really high degree. So we need to try to find a way to change the positions that you can get into to maximize your ability to return back to the, the normal activity. In the meantime, while we can't do the direct activity, again, we keep training to some degree that we can as similarly as possible. And then if we need to, do some supportive activity. So, for instance, in the case of the powerlifter, if you can't get into a, um, a high bar squat or you can't get into a safety bar squat, like you don't have access to it, and you have to go further away from the specific activity that you're doing, then we need to try to uh, shore up those deficits that we're not training to the same degree. Like if you have to go all the way to a leg press, well, we know that you're not going to be challenging your lumbar extensors to the same degree. So then we need to do some additional activities that are going to challenge that. Um, in the case of the runner, if they're not going to be able to train running and instead they have to go to cycling, well, you're not going to be training your calf complex. So now we need to start doing some additional calf complex training. And so considering those details, because it's going to be important to the point that Jason had brought up earlier about load management is, you know, you're not having calf issues right now. And so then if we underload your calf for a significant amount of time, while we're trying to figure out your knee issue, well, then when we return back to running, you are going to be at a greater risk of then having some sort of calf or uh, Achilles ankle issue because we've just underloaded it for such a long time. So those are some major ones. And then, you know, I try not to get um, too crazy in my management options, like stay as close as we can to it, try to be as similar as we can to it. Like if someone has been doing, you know, 45 minutes of running three times a week, I'm going to try to do 45 minutes of cycling if that's as far away as we have to go to it. 45 minutes of speed walking, et cetera, and then try to uh, return back the activity to the most meaningful extent we can. 
if it's some sort of change in intensity level, like for instance, in your situation with powerlifting, like maybe you're leading up to your meet and you um, are like, okay, well I can go up to 400 pounds and no, have no issue. But then after 400 pounds and you're planning to squat 600, you can't do that. Okay, well, we'll work up to the best degree that we can and then try to ramp up the intensity and then fill in the other, uh, fill in your intensity with other stuff like leg press, safety bar squats, belt squats, whatever we can to hit that intensity. And hopefully by the time we get further in, we can, um, do that. I try not to do that option, uh, as much as possible, just because I find that people mentally aren't very good with that. Like if you say, you know, you're going to go into a competition eight weeks from now and you can only back squat up to 80% and we're going to try to make up your 80% to hundred percent effort with leg press. Like mentally, most people can't tolerate that very well. <laughs> yeah. So I'd sooner like be like, okay, well if you can, if you can tolerate and it's going to be painful and uncomfortable back squatting up to your, up to a single at an eight or nine RPE, and then we have to do all of your back off work with a leg press. Let's do that. Because at least mentally, you're more comfortable with that. Like physiologically, we know you're going to get more than enough stimulus for all that other stuff. But you know, so the mental side of it is going to be really important too, from most people's training standpoint. And you know, if we if we take that same principle to whether you're again a runner, power lifter, um, someone who's just living a life trying to do the most activities that you can, and you have something that you find is limiting you. Again, it's just like looking at how close of whatever activity you can do is to it as similarly as possible. And then just try to gradually return to it while you let whatever needs to calm down and maybe look to address it in some sort of way. But a lot of times, like if you are doing a consistent, regular quality exercise routine and you just need to give something some time to calm down, that often is a pretty solid solution for most people. Okay. So it's basically the idea of, you know, try to keep as close to the activity as you can and then load it appropriately until you can kind of work closer and closer to the desired activity of interest. And then at the, you know, and then build up that tolerance to loading it enough to train it. So it's almost like it's still training. It's just your training. For, like it's basically training to train, right? Like getting yourself more, or, you know, working on that robustness of the tissue, getting back to, you know, sport activity or whatever, whatever it is that the activity was beforehand. Do you feel yeah. like people make a mistake in, the ter in terms of they'll, they'll have some, some pain somewhere? So say a powerlifter has knee pain, then they take two weeks off, pain goes away. And okay, I'm, I'm pain-free. Then they try to go right back to the activity at the same level they were at before the pain started. Do you see athletes making that mistake a lot? Yeah. Yeah, definitely. So it's a tricky one because, you know, one part of me says, well, you don't inherently need to not return back to the activity if it's such a short duration of time. Like it could be very well that, you know, you were doing whatever task and you just minorly crept over whatever you can tolerate and it just needs a, a brief window of time to chill out and you can get back right into it. But that's really not what I see. And more often than not, it is going to be that situation where someone has, you know, a little bit of knee pain with squatting. They just decide to take two weeks off. They come back to it. They jump right back into the workout that they did right when they had knee pain. And it's just too much for them at that time. And then they creep over their tolerance again. And they get in this vicious cycle where they try to repeat that same process. And that's where a lot of times people are better off, again, trying to mitigate that risk just by going to a slightly lower challenging volume or intensity or both. And then ramping back up over a brief period of time. It could very well be a single week where you just do, you know, like if you were in that case where you were lifting, had some knee pain with squats, decided to take two weeks off for whatever reason, come back, 
And that first workout back, you just go to like 50 or 60% effort. And then the next time you do 70, 80% effort and then the third workout, you're back to normal as doing something as simple as that can often be really beneficial just to make sure that you grade up to what you're comfortable with. And that way you have a more positive response coming back to it because it could be phys- physically that you have that limitation or that deficit irritability, whatever, or it could also just be mentally for whatever reason people can often have that. So having some sort of graded exposure back to it can be really beneficial. I'm going to ask you another question on top of that. Let's say someone doesn't back away from their pain. Let's say they are like, let's give the example of they are preparing for powerlifting. They get some knee pain while they're squatting, but they just continue to grind it out because you kind of have limited options in that case. You don't have the time to like take three weeks off and gradually come back. Right. Is it harmful to continue going in the face of pain? Is that something that we should be afraid of that we're going to injure something more severely? So, uh, it's a tricky one because in one stance, we have some literature that would indicate that pain can be a precursor to possible um, increased injury. Like we do see, for instance, that um, if someone sustains a minor injury, they are more at risk of sustaining a larger injury later. Um, but at the same time, we have a greater amount of research that indicates that people can exercise their pain without any issue. And sometimes people can exercise through pain and get better faster. It's a bit tricky in that way. And that's where, it, to a degree, it matters within the exact uh, situation we're talking about. So for instance, in the context that I just discussed of where someone can exercise through pain and actually get better, we see that interestingly in a lot of times where someone sustains like a muscle belly sp- um, injury. So like a, a muscle strain and what happens for whatever reason is that actually training through the pain to some level, I wouldn't say like, I don't love the pain scale of zero to 10, but if someone is at like a nine or 10 out of 10, it's probably too much. But what we do see is that, um, there's been a handful of studies now that have compared having people, um, challenge themselves either at zero out of 10 or like a three to five out of 10 pain. And the people that did the three to five out of 10 pain got pain free in the same amount of time, interestingly, but the actual functional abilities that they got were way better. You know, the uh, one classic study that was done on this was in, um, uh, Australian football, I think something like that. And, uh, it was on people that do sprinting activities and they had sustained hamstring strains. And then they had them, uh, do challenging hamstring activities and either zero to 10 pain or the other group was at the three to five out of 10 pain. And the group and both groups made the same return to play. The both groups had the same relative amount of time, um, to pain free. But the difference was that the group that did the three to five had less recurrence and the group that had three to five also had higher amounts of strength adaptations, higher amounts of velocity adaptations. So for whatever reason, like training through the pain was actually to their advantage. And we've seen a a couple of similar studies do that for different body parts as well. And when you just look at most research that's done in almost any sort of tendinopathy, like if you go and look at the Kong's guard or the, um, or any of the research that's been done on, um, Achilles or patellar they almost always have these people trained somewhere between like one on the low side, but more close to three to five out of 10 on the pain scale. And these people get better. They get a lot better. More often than not, they get better than they've ever gone better in any sort of research study. And from the simple fact of like, it might be trained tolerance to actual pain, Maybe, or it's just like, you know, the, the, whatever challenge you need to provide needs to be sufficiently intense to actually cause some discomfort that might be possible. But then on the flip side, um, 
there are different types of injuries, such as like a ligamental injury, where I don't think that necessarily like training into pain is going to be to our advantage. We don't really have a lot of research on that, but I just don't see how mechanistically that would be to our advantage. Like you're not going to train a ligament to tolerate more pain. Like it doesn't have that ability um, inherently. So, you know, like if someone has a UCL injury, like, like in the case of the person doing um, low bar squats and having that sort of discomfort at the medial elbow, it could be a general amount of tissue discomfort. Like it's not necessarily specifically the UCL that's, that's in pain. In contrast, when we're talking about like high velocity pitching, that person is experiencing a UCL injury. They might also have a little bit of um, flexor mass discomfort, but that person most likely is actually having a ligamental injury and just being like, all right, it's good. Just keep training through it. They're most likely going to rupture that sucker and we're setting them up for a big failure. And so to a degree, it's um, really hard to exactly know. Um, it might be, a, if you do look at a lot of these things, like again, ligamental injuries are more often than not associated with like high velocity things. And so it might be where high velocity actions are going to be the most challenging to these different tissues that might not benefit from going into pain. Whereas if we're doing low, um, not necessarily low intensity, but low velocity, it could be high strain, could be low strain. Um, but still somewhere of a challenging effort, we're probably going to be okay. And we might even benefit from it. So it sounds like, it sounds like what you're saying. Part of the thing is, I I guess, very, um, case by case specific, like you said, ligamentous versus, you know, muscular tendinous injuries, but it's, uh, it's, it's almost that we should have an understanding that training pain free isn't necessarily the, the outcome that needs to happen. Right. There can be progress made and no no actual uh, or no worsening damage done if you can train in a moderate, I guess, low to moderate amount of pain and still train enough to improve the whatever the sport or whatever. So you don't necessarily have to stop training if you are aware of what the pain kind of means to you and you're able to get through training sessions, improve, and you kind of have like some pain, but it's not enough to stop you from training. Um, and that's kind of something you can kind of work through if it's a, you know, a muscle or a tendon thing, but if it's ligamentous, like an ankle sprain or a, you know, ACL, MCL, something like that, then it's more of a, okay, we're actually damaging the tissue at that point And we need to be more careful with what the pain means. And I think this also touches a little bit on the idea of preventive medicine, not as kind of feeling no pain or having no diseases, no conditions, like absolutely perfect bill of health, but more so the model of risk mitigation and risk reduction and doing what you can in your power to kind of avoid uh, like the uh, catastrophes, I guess you could say, while still trying to live life, do what you enjoy and just continue on. So if that does mean training through a little bit of injury because you are competing in something, you're having fun, then there's no, not necessarily harm done in that. Whereas someone might completely stop doing like say playing tennis, running, doing what they really enjoy for a period of two weeks. And that might not necessarily be the best outcome for them. Cause that's not living their best life or doing what makes them happy. So that's another thing that we want to uh, push out there, I guess, from what we just talked about is that preventive medicine is not necessarily just nothing. Like you're experiencing nothing all the time. It's just risk mitigation and injury risk reduction. So in your previous powerlifting meets, you mentioned that, you know, this is going to pop up. Do you have any long-term elbow issues from uh, now? Nope. Nope. It only yeah. ever pops up when I'm about four to five weeks out. That's it. Yeah. 
Jason, you did a hundred, uh, hundred kilometer. Was it hundred kilometers? Hundred kilometers. Yeah. Yeah. And leading yeah, up so to that, you had a ton of knee issues, right? I did. Yeah. And it was, <laughs> like we were talking about, it, it really, it's just so like, it, it was when my mileage crept up about like 50 to 60 miles per week. So anything up to that point, I like, could kind of, the pain was like much more like, you know, mild and whatever. But then like when I would get to those 60 mile weeks, I can still train. So that's another interesting point. I can still, you know, get meaningful training out of it, but I had to modify other, like I couldn't like squatting was too painful with like a barbell. So I had to step away from that, even though I could still deal with the pain while running and still improve. I had to like, uh, I guess, modify some of my other strength training activities and things like that to kind of, I think offload or, or offset the loading that I was getting, but it was, it was interesting. I don't know if you're aware, but we also have a lot of content going alongside each episode over on our Instagram page. So if you aren't already following us there, make sure to go do so at Prevent Pod. We have a lot of content relating to each episode, including waveforms, different quotes that you can share with your friends and help us spread the message of preventive medicine. And with that, let's get back to the show. So one of the other uh, ideas that this kind of talks about with the discussion we're having about risk reduction is kind of the idea of prehab. And our listeners might have heard of the term prehab. Um, you know, there's a lot of people that throw the term around, whether or not like people know what it means, what exactly it is. So in your words, can you describe kind of what the notion behind prehab is and whether it's like evidence-based, what actually is evidence-based within prehab and kind of that whole shebang? Yeah, it's a uh, an interesting one because it does, I think... I'm pretty sure it originally comes from the world of research um, because there is research on it and there is merit to the term, as you mentioned briefly, but it's been misconstrued a lot and really taken out of the original context by people that I think are well-meaning. However, it then gets convoluted because people who are appropriately using the term are often then lumped into everyone who's inappropriately using the term. And now we see that there's been a little bit more in the evidence-based community, like a backlash against the word usage. So oftentimes, what you mostly see it as, like if you're scrolling Instagram, this is for sure the usage you're going to most likely see is that people are showing you some sort of exercises for some sort of body part with the claim that it's going to reduce injury, prevent injury, mitigate risk, whatever terminology you want to try to use. But the, the premise is that you're not going to get hurt because you did these these exercises. Now, generally, people are not supporting that statement with any sort of substantial research um, at best. And what we realistically see is that these are just random exercises people have picked and put together into a series of different things that like stress some sort of muscle group, which is fantastic, but it's not legitimately what prehab is meant. Um, so the original term, to my knowledge, I don't think it had ever been used before, but um, it's been started to get utilized in the research body back when they were looking at, okay, well, if we have someone exercise before surgery, does that person have a more successful outcome? So it's a prehab. Instead of waiting until after the surgery to do the exercise, can we start doing it before? And what they saw for various different conditions was that having the person begin an exercise routine in an injured state was beneficial for when they came out of surgery. Uh, a classic example of this is with ACL injuries where, you know, uh, depending upon the country that you're in, you could have anywhere from you know, if you're not a professional athlete, you're probably going to have to wait at least like a week um, in the United States, uh, up to maybe a couple of months. If you're in Canada or another country uh, that's more of a, um, a universal healthcare system, you could be waiting like six to 12 months for an ACL surgery. And in that time, it's been found that if you exercise and do a challenging exercise specifically, like what you would do after the surgery, 
you have way better outcomes. And so that's where the term prehab really started to gain a lot of attention was when we started to get this kind of research. And then from there, I think it spiraled into what the dumpster fire that it currently is. Um, the challenge is that, you know, like if you look at some of the research that we've begun finding on different sort of exercises, I don't know if I love the exact uh, description I just gave, but, you know, certain exercises we found to be really beneficial to reduce injury risk something like a Nordic hamstring curl for sprinters for whatever reason. Um, there's lots of theories about it, but we see that the Nordic hamstring curl specifically has a greater reduction in injury risk than other hamstring exercises, including regular leg curls, including remaining deadlifts, all sorts of options. It for what, whatever mechanism, there's lots of theories on it. It reduces injury risk to the hamstrings to a greater degree during high velocity sprinting. We see a similar thing for the Copenhagen side plank for groin injuries. And so then um, these various types of exercises um, have demonstrated consistently in the research body to be beneficial in reducing injury risk. So in a way, like if you had a group of soccer athletes that had not sustained a hamstring or a groin injury and you said, I'm going to do Nordics and Copenhagen's with them following the relative protocols that are in place. Well, in my mind, that would be prehab because you are trying to reduce the likelihood of them having an injury. Now, if you're like, well, I'm going to do some sideline external rotation and I'm going to do some windmills and whatever else kind of stuff, like they're cool exercises. They can be beneficial for people still, but they don't technically match up to the terminology of prehab. And so then I just try to shy away from using that terminology myself. And I think that a lot of times it's just like, well, intentioned people that don't really understand what they're saying. So, like when someone says like, oh, you know, I'm, I'm doing these, you know, banded shoulder rotations before bench as my prehab. That's that's not what the term means, really, when in, in the sense of actual evidence based term of prehab. Nope. But there are certain exercises, i.e. Nordic hamstring curl and Copenhagen side plank and some others that can potentially you know, prevent issues with regard to a specific sport or a specific activity. Now, in, yes. in, in your world where you're kind of always balancing, you know, the evidence in the individual and, you know, different, you know, so sometimes there's, there is no evidence, right? Like, so someone could technically apply this, a similar line of thinking like, well, if the Nordic hamstring curl represents an eccentric load, you know, can I, can I, I guess, quote unquote, prehab bicep injuries by doing a loaded eccentric, you know, slow, slow lowering of a bicep curl, you know, is that the same principle, but it will it work the same way. You don't really know, but if someone's doing a lot of, you know, mixed grip deadlifting or a strong, strong man events that put a lot of stress on the bicep, can you kind of use that ideology or that sort of line of thinking and be like, okay, well we can apply it here knowing that we don't really have a direct answer via evidence, but we could try it based on the, you know, the, the you know, implied mechanism. Yes, I guess you could definitely do that. The key thing that you pointed out there was you gave an example where you would be placing the bicep under a specific eccentric stress that is similar to that action. Whereas a lot of times when people are utilizing this terminology, they don't do that. And that's, you know, like if we were looking at those activities, so the Nordic and the Copenhagen as examples, or even the reverse Nordic now that we're seeing it come out, and where there is that eccentric challenge that is providing the stress, and we see that most injuries occur during eccentric activities. So if we take that line of logic and apply it out further, and we do have people start doing specific eccentric activities to these, these body parts that might be at risk, theoretically, it should provide that benefit. The challenge does come with, you know, to what degree can we create meaningful change 
and to what degree are we actually gonna be able to impact it? Like in the case of the bicep, you know, if you're doing a mixed grip deadlift, you're, you, you can accommodate that by, you know, number one, training mixed grip deadlifts, number two, making sure that you don't actually have your elbows, uh, flexed while you're, you're beginning the motion, because I just don't think that you're going to be able to substantially train the ability for the bicep. You know, like, I don't know what someone can dumbbell curl eccentrically. Like I can do a set of 12 with like 45s, but if I'm going to go and take like a 70 and try to do that action, I don't think it's going to transfer over to when I go and try to deadlift 600 pounds and my elbow gets pulled straight. Yeah. Yeah. And so that's where, you know, like when we're doing something like a a Nordic curl to a degree, it's, it it is very similar to the muscle action and the, because it's a body weight activity, um, uh, sufficiently over, uh, the, the speed of the contraction, that sort of stuff. Whereas again, for like a strong man or a power lifter, I don't know if it's going to tra- like, it might reduce the risk to a small extent, like it's entirely possible, but it might not be such a meaningful change that you can be like, okay, well now I can delve with flexed elbows. We're good to go, baby. It's probably not going to be the case. And, uh, you're probably, I actually have a bicep rupture. So, um, uh, not from deadlifting or strongman, even though I've done both, but, um, you just like, so you can't prepare speed, for everything. Right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Which I never done. It was my first time water skiing. So, it's a classic example of you should prepare for things. So this is a, actually a great kind of segue. So you had the bicep rupture and you never had it surgically repaired, correct? So you've just basically rehabbed it back to full, basically full functionality without any sort of surgical repair. Yeah. Aesthetically, it is not uh, like if I were to, I guess I could show you guys right now. Yeah. Aesthetically, it's not um, normal. Like you can, you can, it's quite obvious and people comment on it on a regular basis and ask me what the hell is wrong with my arms. But um yeah. So from a standpoint of function though, yeah, I can basically curl the same amount of weight. Now it's taken, uh, almost two years to do that. And then from a standpoint of like other stuff, like I can do muscle ups, I can do lots of activities. So this is the good arm. Oh, we got the gun show going on in the podcast. <laughs> and then that's guys, the, Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Absolutely. So you can yep. see like, there's a, there's a substantial belly difference and, uh, the, when they did the ultrasound, it looked like my tendon, uh, reattached, but onto something else. So like, it's either attached onto like an aponeurosis of my brachialis or something else. And it's, it's still having a contraction and being able to produce some level of force. But when I do activities, like, um, generally, uh, like if I do a bicep curl and I keep a supinated position, I can feel in that very initial bottom position and extreme, um, tension on that. It doesn't, it, for the first like year, it honestly felt like it was going to rip off. But then, um, now it just feels like there's a lot of tension there and then we're good to go. Sometimes I get the odd, like, um, like bony ish type of pain, but then yeah, generally no issues. And what led you to make the decision of, uh, pursuing a non-surgical outcome? Um, that's like a big one there because, uh, so, uh, for anyone that doesn't know the, the timeline, it was that I had just left the U S and, uh, I had moved back to Canada and people here, Canada has uh, universal medicine, which, uh, is, is true, but you have to, uh, have lived in the country long enough to have that. So I found this weird amount of time where I actually was not, uh, covered by insurance in any country and to get the surgery was not going to be cheap. And I didn't have any money. And then, uh, I was contemplating just biting the bullets and doing it. And I started to research about the possibility of having non-surgical management. And there's a little bit available that in essence, if you don't get it surgically managed, 
the biggest deficit that we see is elbow flexion strength deficits and also supination strength deficits. And so then I talked to a bunch of my friends that are surgeons and I was like, okay, so realistically how stupid am I going to be for doing this? And the first question that all of them asked me was, is it your dominant hand or your non-dominant hand? And in my case, it's my non-dominant hand. And they said, okay, well, how much supination do you do with your non-dominant hand? And I took a while to think about it and realistically, like not that much. And they're like, okay, well, if you have no meaningful reason for it and you're okay, you know, having a deformity on your arm and realizing that it's going to limit you in a few minor activities, then you don't have to have it surgically managed. I was like, yeah, I'm okay with that. And so, um, and then what I'm actually really glad about is that I had that great advice because if you start to look into it, people that do have it surgically managed have a lot of issues from it as well. And a common issue is, um, most people will have some sort of injury to the radial nerve afterwards. And so then they actually have like wrist drop. And sometimes that wrist drop will, ha- will last for like two years. And um, they can have all sorts of issues with elbow extension, like not being able to achieve full elbow extension. That's super common from it. And since I'm a competitive weightlifter, elbow extension is obviously quite important. Um, it's really common that people will get it done. They can't deadlift for years because they don't, again, regain elbow extension. Um, so in my case... You know, like if you asked me to screw, screw something that's really challenging, I guess that would be hard. But um, I've honestly never experienced a single issue with it yet. And uh, we'll see what happens in time. I was originally going to write up a, a, a piece of research on it, but I never got around to it. So, yeah, I mean, it really is an interesting case. Today. I've never seen, I mean, I've, I've heard of stories and I know, you know, I've talked to different surgeons who like in certain populations, they won't repair it because the, like, you know, the same thing that surgeons told, told you is like certain people or certain situations, they just kind of give up whatever, you know, minor activities you wouldn't be able to do. But if it's, you know, a situation where it's their dominant hand or something where they need that or they work as like a, you know, some sort of job where you need full supination with both hands, then obviously you, we need to repair it. But I, I guess they go, uh, they go un, unrepaired more than I thought they did, which was interesting. Yeah, I've now, uh, since I had it done, and I, I've talked about it online a bit, I've had a few people that are high-level athletes in different sports come and talk to me. There's a guy that competes in the CrossFit Games. Um, he's a master's athlete, but he's like, I think won the first master's division and the second master's division now. And he uh, has a ruptured bicep tendon. And uh, so, like, it's obviously not uh, slowing him down. And I've talked to a couple of swimmers that have had it done. Um, I've talked to cyclists. So, it's just, again, like, yeah, whatever activity you're doing and to what de- uh, degree is it meaningful. Like, if you're a cyclist, like, how much do you care that you can't do supination strength? Like, so, for a lot of these people, they just end up saying, okay, well, then why take on the risk that comes with surgery if I don't necessarily have a need for it afterwards? Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, it definitely presents an interesting case study of, you know, what's possible, you know, in, in the non-surgical outcomes. And it's probably a good time to say, if you are having any sort of, you know, painful issues or injuries, <laughs> I would be coming to talk to your doctor about this is not medical advice exactly. for educational entertainment purposes. So if you have an injury, go see your doctor. We are not your doctors. Yeah, we are not uh, advising you to skip your surgery. Yeah, exactly. Um, and so kind of moving on from that, one thing we've been kind of enjoying with these episodes in the recent past has been doing some myth busting. So, you know, we're taking some common myths in the field and kind of, you know, uh, hearing out if they're, if they're valid or if they have some sort of validity or if they're kind of just, you know, myths. So first one, KT tape, does it work? Does it do anything useful? 
And now for um, those before Dr. Spinelli answers this, this is like the people that you would see with like the, like the random tape that's just around their shoulder, like sometimes on their back, maybe around their elbow. Uh, it just kind of looks like it's, I don't know, like holding something together is I guess the idea that some people might think of it. So that is what we're referring to. So I would uh, put KT tape in the utility standpoint, like I would put a lot of other modalities for the vast majority of cases is utterly useless in my opinion. And honestly, like almost a negative to utilize because it gives the person poor beliefs and expectations about the benefit that it's going to deliver. The education around it is almost always blatantly incorrect and um, very far-fetched. So I think that from all of those standpoints, it does not provide a good benefit to people and should not be utilized. However, um, I always add this because, you know, if you are in a situation where you're doing some sort of high level activity and you need to gain every little bit of a benefit that you can, and for the day of a competition or right around the competition, you need some sort of, or you'll take any sort of uh, contextual or placebo effect that you can get, you could make an argument that utilizing something like this might provide benefit. Um, I don't love that, but if someone like, if you give it to me, like, you know, if I go to do some sort of competition and you go to take me up, like, I don't think it's going to help me because I just have like literally no expectation of benefit from it. But if someone is like, I think that stuff could help me. And there's some sort of athlete that's going to about to go do some highly competitive event. They might get benefit the day of, I don't, I'm not going to say like, you know, long-term that they're going to get some sort of like crazy issue from it. Like they're not going to lose their self-efficacy or whatever else. If the person started to be like, Oh, I need to get taped up every practice. Well, that would obviously become a, a significant problem because it's, it's again, like taking away their self-efficacy. It's, it's making them have inappropriate expectations and beliefs on what their body is capable of and what they're also getting from the tape. But if it was like a day of thing where the person's just like, like they do have a minor, irritation or injury that's occurred and they just need some sort of like little mental boost to just give their maximum performance. You could make an argument that it's not necessarily going to be bad for them to do. It's the same sort of thing with like foam rolling, all these other uh, devices that people can use where like it might provide benefit on the day of. And we do have some research on some of this other stuff. We're going to talk about in a second where you can make a stronger argument for that. Like K-Tape doesn't have um, justification in the research to do that. That's just like purely theoretical so yeah and so uh, before we go, oh, go, go ahead, ahead. Roger, go ahead Roger. i was gonna get into the next one so go ahead if you're not to this i was just gonna say you know kind of throw it in the bucket of you know if you could give a brief kind of myth busting idea on just passive modalities in general i know it's a tough tough nuanced thing to talk about but there seems to be a lot of emphasis in the rehab world put on passive modalities you know dry needling you know is any sort of you know scraping or massage therapy, all that sort of thing, which, you know, all each one has, you know, it's individual, whatever, you know, parts that need to be evaluated. But as a whole, do you find that passive modalities are overrated when it comes to rehab? Extremely. Yeah. Yeah. Like, uh, I just recently did a podcast, uh, with a researcher named Maxi Misiak and we discussed some of her research, which is on the uh, effects of therapeutic alliance. So essentially like how much connection do you and I have when I'm your therapist and you're my patient? And one of her main studies that she did was on electrophysical agents, which are um, things like TENS, IFC, et cetera. And it's where they had a study where they either had the device turned on or not on. And then they also had the person being very kind and a very nice, meaningful interaction. And then not. They were just like, I'm going to turn on your device and now I'm going to leave. And when they compared the effects, 
having a ledger physical agent on did provide a slightly greater benefit than if it was turned off, but it was not very much like basically, uh, not non-therapeutic. Now, when you, they provided the, uh, the benefit of having the person interact with you, the effect doubled or almost tripled and it was, uh, versus when the person was not interacting with them. And so we can see from that case, because people are always going to give me the argument of, oh, well, I had this and it provided lots of benefit. And it's like, well, did you have just the treatment or did you also have a treatment with someone that you liked and interacted well with and you had a, a good time and a connection with that person? Because that's a different conversation. Because that's where, when we look at the research on this stuff, is they often go to the side of where they try to provide the stimulus without the other pieces uh, in what the, the treatment often is. And that's where it's often challenging to convey that to patients. Because when we look at stuff like dry needling, for instance, whether you insert a needle or don't insert a needle, it seems to have the same effect. Whether you put it into the trigger point, not into the trigger point, same effect. Whether you poke them with a toothpick, a wooden cone, or a needle same effect. And so the challenge is that, you know, in all, a lot of these types of passive modalities, we don't see that it provides any more effect when there's no, um, uh, interaction incorporated into it. And also we see a, a similar degree of improvement based upon what the person expects from the treatment. If someone has a strong belief that they're going to get benefit from something like dry needling, acupuncture, et cetera, they are more likely to get a strong benefit from it. If the person doesn't think that they will, they, they get minimal effect. So, you know, most of the time I'm trying to advise patients that it, you know, I'm going to do with you what I think is the most supported interventions, what we can say that whether it's me or not, you're going to get more and more benefit from. And then if you think that there's other stuff that you want to do, you can explore that outside of my treatments because I don't think that that's what I should be providing with ethically. So then uh, that's sort of where I go with a lot of that stuff. Okay. And now for those listening, keep in mind, this is in context, not with the things like the bicep rupture or with like a larger muscle tear. We're talking about like those smaller nagging injuries, like the tendonitis, tendinopathy, things like that, which these are more uh, often used for. All right. So the next one we're going to talk about is the myth or truth of muscle imbalances as the cause for tendinopathy, tendinitis, and all those kinds of things. Is there anything uh, going on there? Uh, basically I would say no, it's, it's, it's a challenging one because the first thing is whenever someone says that my, my first question to them is how do we measure a muscle imbalance? What do you mean by that? Is it range of motion? Is it strength? Is it velocity? Like how are we quantifying that? And more often than not, they have no answer to it. Um, it's sort of like, oh, they're not the same. It's like, okay, well I have no way of doing anything with that. And so a follow-up question, if they do have an answer is like, okay, well it is strength do they need to be even like, why do my hamstrings need to be as strong as my quads? Like it, they're obviously not the same muscle. They don't cross the same, do the same things. They have different insertions, et cetera. Why would they be the same? So when we look at most of our research body on this kind of stuff, like it just doesn't support the whole notion of it. Um, there are some situations where we could make an argument that not muscle imbalances, but movement ratios could be justified. So for instance, um, if we look at something like a, a knee extension to knee flexion strength ratio, inherently isn't that important. But post-injury, for instance, like post-ACLR, so someone has um, ACL surgery, we do see that to a degree it is a meaningful piece of information. Like there is a, if there is a drastically 
bad ratio, like a five to one strength ratio, like that person does have a slightly greater injury risk, whereas we do want it more of like a two to three ish ratio. Similarly for, you know, throwing athletes, we do see that commonly athletes that have a big external rotation strength deficit are more likely to have an injury. But it's not like if you have a one-to-one strength ratio, you're good to go. It's more like if you just have really weak external rotators, you're not going to be in a great place to throw really fast. And if you talk to most people, you think about it, it just like makes sense because those are the guys that slow down your arm. So if you just whip your arm out and have no expectation that your muscles are strong enough to slow you down from that, well, of course, something's going to get hurt. So, um, but we don't have like a specific number. We don't have specific speeds. We don't have like, it's just a, this is general concept. And so again, more often than not, being generally strong is the best thing you can do for a lot of this stuff, not specifically strong at any one part or any one ratio. So in, I guess really, like you said, like it's hard to quantify symmetry anyways, but like outside of sports that require symmetry, you know, physique competitions, bodybuilding, it's really, you know, in the evidence that at least I've seen, there's not a huge, you know, a huge amount of data that supports that muscles need to be equally strong, even from one, one leg or one arm to the other. It almost seems like, you know, depending on the sport, plenty of imbalances exist that actually may be helpful. You know, if you're swinging a baseball bat, you want, you know, the obliques on the side that you're creating the force with to be as strong as the other side, or they're naturally going to be stronger on the side that you swing the bat every time. So it's not only are they going to be stronger, they're also going to be a hypertrophy difference. Yeah. Yeah. So they'll, you know, you might, you know, I think every athlete probably has a subset of, you know, some muscles are, are bigger, some muscles are smaller, um, and that doesn't necessarily hinder performance. And it actually, in many cases, depending on the sport, may actually be beneficial towards sport performance, which is interesting. Nailed it. But, um, but yes, yeah, so that's one of the things I think that, you know, I think most lift, I think, you know, if we're talking to the lifting community, like that's something that I think bothers lifters more than other sports is like, you know, if they lean a little bit one way on your squat, you know, then they're, you know, they're like, they go through the top and say, well, I got to break down my weight to 50% and just work on this. So I have no more hip hip. <laughs> Drop down to the bar, you mean? Yeah, go down to that PVC <laughs> pipe for, uh, for certain uh, rehab Instagram pages. But, um, <laughs> but yeah, so it's just the idea that you know symmetry, asymmetries happen in sports, and it's really in a case by case basis. Is the, is the perceived asymmetry being benefit? Is it is it hindering performance? And is it making you more likely to be injured? And it seems like in in both cases, the answer seems to be. To be you know that it's not going to hinder performance and it's, it's not necessarily making you more likely for injury either so mm-hmm. um but yeah and so last the last kind of myth busting thing so we kind of touched on it a little bit but say you know massage therapy teams is a really popular thing amongst almost all athletes right you see olympic athletes team sport athletes when you know if there's unlimited resources many of them take advantage of you know having a team massage therapist or something like that where they get you know um regular massage therapy is there any validity to massage therapy either preventing injuries improving performance or uh, making you um, i guess improving sport performance at all so yeah you brought up a key point there that makes the conversation more fun from a standpoint of injury reduction or prevention we don't see it have any any meaningful benefit there like it's, it, it can be a wonderful thing for some people. It can help with relaxation. It can help you feel better, feel looser, X, Y, and Z. And that's, that's great, but it doesn't necessarily prevent injuries from occurring. 
now where the conversation does change to degrees from a performance standpoint. And that's where we actually do see that massage often does provide some sort of performance benefit, particularly when athletes train more frequently. Um, like if you are in a situation and this is what I uh, mentioned, we were going to discuss later is, you know, like if you are going to do double days or you're going to be training, you know, um, very close together in any sort of format, we do see that doing some sort of like very soft tissue type treatment seems to provide a benefit in reducing the amount of time that it takes to recover. Um, it's hard to say that if it actually helps you create positive adaptations, which is a bit of a different conversation. You know, a lot of times people will say, well, um, you know, like if I'm able to recover faster then I can train better X, Y, and Z, it doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to actually create better adaptations in the long term. And so that's where it is a little bit tricky because, you know, um, for some athletes, they might find that foam rolling, massage, whatever might allow them to train um, sooner, more challenging. We don't see that it necessarily creates long-term adaptations. Like they feel like they're better and they might perform better, but it doesn't necessarily mean that they actually get stronger in the long run, which can be kind of hard to comprehend for a lot of people. So um, it's a tricky one and it's where we do see a lot of, again, like high performance settings provide on staff massage therapists and all sorts of things. And we do have literature that indicates that those people will perform at a higher level, at least following massage. We just don't know consistently if it actually leads to better long-term outcomes, which is kind of hard for people to comprehend because, you know, like if I have a sprinter do a challenging workout in the morning and they have to come back for another challenging workout in the afternoon and they perform better in that cha the second challenging workout, you'd think that that would make them, um, perform better six months from now. We just don't see that necessarily hold up in research that that actually happens. So, but they, but we do see that they tend to perform better, which is something. So, um, if it's being used from a performance standpoint, I have like way less of an issue and no argument with people when they say that the challenge that I particularly have is when people start to talk about it from an injury standpoint, because it just doesn't seem to hold up at all, um, from prevention or benefit. Like, you know, if someone is injured and they have massage, we don't see that it helps them recover faster. Um, yeah. You know, and I think one of the, one of the interesting discussions that would be a whole other podcast would be, you know, you know, personal belief <laughs> in the modality. Like we just, we kind of touched on a little bit of different, different topics here, but you know, like, you know, see different athletes all the time swearing by different modalities that we have consistently seen in the research to prove no benefit, but you know, they quote unquote swear by it or, you know, it, it helps them. And, and I think one thing that can't be overstated is, you know, the effect of their belief in whatever they're doing. And, you know, you mentioned it quite a bit too, you know, your belief or ex expectation of benefit from whatever modality is actually really does improve what, it, no matter what you're doing, it's going to improve it. So, you know, there is a, an interesting conversation to be had, I guess, in terms of like, where is the ethical line of, you know, giving someone a, a bad narrative, but at the same time, it, they're believing in it so much and have the resource to use whatever, uh, you know, modality. And, and so where, where's, where's that line in the conversation of like, okay, well, I'm going to strongly recommend against this or it's like, ah, if you feel like it's helping you, you know, and you can afford it or it's not causing you to waste time that you could otherwise show otherwise he's doing something else. Um, it's an interesting conversation, but definitely a different, a whole nother podcast talk. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to have to be episode three with you, Dr. Spinelli. Love it. Can't wait. 
well, we want to thank you for episode two. I think myth busting in particular is something we found very valuable. I didn't, I know we didn't do it in our uh, first episode with you, but we find that it really like puts together the idea of this, that people see like every day of like what people are doing together on Instagram in real life when they go to the gym, and then it kind of puts it right against the evidence, like a direct comparison. So, um, if we do an episode three, <laughs> we'll probably do the same thing again, just cause I think it's really valuable. But for now we're gonna start wrapping this episode up and I know you're ready for the uh, coffee shop of how to get healthy, but you already answered that and you kind of already answered in the beginning of this episode too with pretty much just like be trained train sleep eat properly the basic things but in this one we're going to do something a little bit different in the terms of exercise and that is are there specific exercises or like say someone comes up to you in a coffee shop let's put it back in a coffee shop different question um so say someone comes up to you in a coffee shop it's like hey dr spinelli are there exercises that i can be doing pretty regularly or like every day so that i can stay functional longer what would you say to that so, uh, the number one thing would be walking, of course. Uh, now once we get past that, I don't have research for a lot of this stuff, but the b- biggest thing that I would say is just generally moving your joints through a various large range of motion. And I don't mean like FRC stuff where you gotta try and go hold and range contractions and do some sort of fancy thing there. I mean, just like try to bend over and touch your toes, reach up to the roof, go through those ranges, do a little bit of spine twists, a little bit of hip twists here and there, and just utilize the range that you have. Because what we do know is that when people stop utilizing it on a regular basis, that doesn't mean daily, but you know, like if you don't bend over and touch your toes for months on end, you're going to lose the ability to do so. Um, at least temporarily, it might be a neurological change. It might be an actual, um, architectural change. We don't know, but what we do see is that when people stop generally utilizing these different things, you lose the benefit of being able to do so. So just like exploring that range to a a reasonable amount, if I had to pick some sort of special exercise, like I would literally tell people to bend over and touch their toes and reach up to the roof and then like probably get into a wide stance and then turn to one side and turn to the other side. Those would be like actually what I would pick. And, um, when I work with patients that have various types of issues, particularly back injuries, I give them this thing called like a movement snack where I have them do these types of things on like a frequent basis to regain the ability to do so and regain the ability to be comfortable doing them. And, uh, there is definitely benefit to it. They're just not magical. Yeah, so that's a fantastic answer. So, you know, that's definitely. Uh, <laughs> I, was, I was personally kind of expecting something like a squat, do like some actual movement stuff. I wasn't on. I was honestly not expecting just like very simple movements, like touching the floor. So, people are going to lift weights and something like that. Like, yeah, you no, know, I'd love for them to squat, press, hinge, <laughs> pull, etc. Yeah, we're just talking about like. Like when I have, uh, I have a situation like that commonly happen, but it's more often than not like, you know, someone is messaging me on Instagram. Someone is uh, seeing me on the street and they know that I, uh, I, I'm a physio and it's like, okay, well, what should I do? It, it's, it's less common that they're asking me about lifting exercises and more common. They're asking me about like, what is this? Like, do I need to do dead bugs every day? Do I need to do bird dogs every day? Do I need to be doing this like weird crunch thing on a daily basis? And this other side plank uh, thing It's like, no, I'm you need to like big three exercises. <laughs> yeah. So, um, yes, if you want to lift weights, I think that's honestly the best thing. And I try to encourage everybody to lift weights. It's, uh, probably the most underrated thing that we can do as humans, um, consistently on a regular basis. It's basically the closest thing to a founder of youth that I think we have, but 
Um, yeah. And if you're going to do so, do big compound movements and then pick some stuff that you like to do for fun and try to just smash it, do some bicep curls, do whatever you want, do some calf raises. I don't care. Just like train hard and do so somewhat frequently, but I wouldn't tell people that they need to squat every day. Awesome. All right. Well, thanks for coming on. Yeah. Thanks for coming on. We had you on for uh, episode two. We'll probably have episode three. See you in a couple months for that. (laughs) But for this one, thank you. There's a lot of valuable information in this that we hope our uh, listeners can um, hopefully use in their daily lives. Um, Obviously not as medical advice. Um, (laughs) Yeah. Thank you for coming on again. (laughs) And then we will put in the show notes, um, all of uh, Dr. Spinelli's contact information for where you can find him on Instagram or anything like that. But anything you want to plug last second before we, uh, we sign off here, Dr. Spinelli. Uh, you can check out yeah all my Instagram stuff. You can check out my YouTube. You can check out whatever you want. Uh, and if you have specific questions, you can feel free to email me and we can toss it in the show notes. Awesome. All right. Always great having you on. Appreciate it. Hey everyone. This is Raghav. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the preventive medicine podcast. If you want more content and to join in on the conversation, find us on YouTube, Twitter, and Instagram at PreventPod. That's P-R-E-V-E-N-T-P-O-D. Thank you for listening and we'll see you on the next one.